absolutely ridiculous. Hello, welcome to Around the Course Squash Podcast. It is a sad day in the squash world. Renee Melwalili, the current world number one, has just announced her retirement from professional squash. Some of the tributes and the tweets and the, and the Facebook and Instagrams that have been pouring in give you an insight in the impact that she had on the squash world, both as a player, unbelievable player, legend, so good to watch, and as a person, an absolutely inspiring character and how she conducted herself on and off the squash court, how she treated her opponents, both in victory and in loss and in the heat of battle are a few of the many reasons why she was loved by all the squash fans around the world and also why she'd be missed so much in the sport. On behalf of the boys and myself, congratulations, Raneem, on your amazing career and we wish you all the health and happiness and success in the world in your next chapter in life. On today's show, Stuart will give us some inter- some pretty amazing stats and facts on Raneem's squash playing career. We also welcome Stevie Richardson, who's an Irish squash legend, and he's going to talk us through some of the impact that the current pandemic will have on the global economy. My name is Arthur Gaskin, and with me here as ever is Stuart Crawford and Christopher Sackley. How you doing, fellas? Good, thanks. Doing great. Stuart, you don't sound great. Just just good? Uh, yeah, just good. Okay, good is good. <laughs> uh, I say I've got a pretty small emotional range scale, so it doesn't really go beyond good very often. <laughs> probably doesn't go below good very often either then. yeah I mean mine probably varies from like a 4 to a 6 rather than 1 to 10 that's alright isn't it strong 6 though strong 6 <laughs> yeah. when it's there it's strong yeah <laughs> a 6 for Stu is a 10 for most people yeah <laughs> I'm actually closer to a 4 for reasons that we're about to just talk about which is the, the retirement of one of my favourite players on the tour so we'll talk about that in a second can't say I'm crazy high right now either Stu just flew back to Canada on, on uh, Monday, which a few days ago um, when we're recording this. And yeah, they have a pretty strict isolation protocol where you're not supposed to leave the, the property. So we're getting a little bit of fresh air and doing some front yard circuits and whatnot, but it's, it's, it's not ideal. Jeez, guys, I think I'm, uh, I'm going to have to pull yours up. I'm, I'm looking at an eight. I've never been an eight. Oh, it's, it's a great place to be, man. Great place to be. It was Father's Day on Sunday and Anola got herself for, it was kind of like a Homer Simpson present to Marge. Yeah, she, she handed me a bike seat for the bike, thinking that like I was delighted. How did she know? She, you know, she is, she's just ahead of her time. Huh? <laughs> I mean, call me biased. So stuck the bike seat in. She was very sketchy getting in at first, but once the wheels were spinning, the wind was in her face. Happy days. Maybe you need Nola Stewart. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's not go there. <laughs> uh, maybe some cashews. Do you want some cashews? <laughs> so what's been going on, Stu? Obviously, you know you just touched on it there now. Yeah, so there's a day in the squash world. We're recording this uh, the afternoon, and it's just been announced this morning that uh, Renima Elwilili is retired, which is a bit of a shock for me personally. Um, certainly not something I saw coming, coming, given that she's current number one in the world. And yeah, it's just a bit out of the blue. Yeah, I think I don't think many people expected it. I, I thought so I saw something on Facebook this morning and somebody put it in one of the forums on I just thought it was a bit of a spoof, to be honest, when I kind of ignored it. 
Well, we actually touched on this in our episode where we discussed the greatest of all time and we talked about Jonathan Power retiring at number one in the world and we also talked about Sue Devoy doing the same thing when she was, Chris remembers the stats of what country she was uh, open champion of, but it was something like half the world basically. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, but to the best of my knowledge, they're the only two people prior to Raneem who had retired when they were number one in the world, so... Yeah, it's just, she's been so dominant over the last couple of years in particular. I think she's held the number one spot for uh, close to two years, certainly a year and a half. Um, and I would say her and Cherbini have really led the way for the women's game for probably the last three or four years. Certainly since Nicole David dropped off, uh, Laura Massaro was also up there. But yeah, it's just a bit of a surprise to everyone, I think. Yeah, Later, we we get into it with Stevie a little bit. How he uh, considers himself a bit of a benchmark in in the in the Irish squash, um, you know, community for the young lads to try and make the team. But Raneem, to me, has been that benchmark for someone to win a a big tournament. Like if she she was kind of at that level and had that consistency, that she could put together a tournament no matter what the situation. And for someone to actually go and beat her, usually you walked away from that tournament saying that person was lights out this week. Don't really know what to say. I just loved watching her play. I quite often actually would watch actually the two players when I was not feeling my own sort of swing. If I was, you know, I would watch a bit of Raneem or a bit of Shabana. Just uh, just how smooth and how easy they looked to make the game look, how relaxed their movements were, how smooth their swing was, how smooth their movement. And... Yeah, so cool, calm and collected, ultimate role model. Yeah, completely agree. And I think there's been a lot of tributes from other players on social media about just what she achieved in the game. But the thing that stands out to me is just how much respect she had amongst uh, her peers and not just for her, her squash ability, but also for the way she conducted herself and her her character and how fair she was. Uh, I haven't seen anyone ever say a bad word about her. She's never someone that's involved in sort of scrappy matches where there's a lot of lets and a lot of sort of contentious decisions. She's just so fair and always played the game in the right spirit and the right way. Yeah, I remember uh, one of the greatest matches that she played in. and She actually lost, but she played uh, Nicole David and she had a couple of match balls in the fourth. Yeah, it was the 2014 World Open final. And I think everyone who watched it as much as they might have been inspired by the comeback I would say more people felt for Renee that day than they would have acknowledged the comeback I don't know maybe I'm wrong but I just remember watching it and just I was I, I don't know her um no connection but just watching it just being absolutely gutted knowing that that would have been her first world title and her home crowd and her family there it, yeah how yeah. she kind of responded to that I think the way she bounced back says a lot about her because I think there was some question marks over her, not necessarily her her character or determination, but just how she would respond to that sort of setback. And understandably so, because for anyone to have match balls, I know Gregory Gote at quite an early stage in his career had a situation similar with the World Open final in Egypt again, actually against David Palmer, where he held some match balls and it took him a, a while to recover that and I think it was like nine years before he actually came back and won the world title yeah. um, and again just to, it speaks a lot about Raneem about how she was able to she was actually the player that ended Nicole David's 
streak of nine years as world number one. And yeah, she went on, she played four world championship finals in the end. That was her first, but she played a few more after that, including winning one in 2017. So yeah, she's had a great career. Interesting looking back at her junior career, and we think currently about just how dominant the Egyptian are, Egyptians are. But she was really one of the first people that started that, along with probably Obnea Abdelkawi. Um, but I was looking back at Renim's record in juniors, and she won she won two World Junior Championships, which uh, Nicole David was the only person that had achieved that before her. Uh, a few people have done it since, but that's because it's now held every year, so it's a little bit easier than when Renim and Nicole did it, where it was only every second year. But she also she played nine British Junior Opens, and she made the final every single time. Uh, and she won six of them. Um, she, she first played it when she was like 10 years old and she played the under-13s. She made the final when she was sort of two years younger than everyone else in the draw. Wow. Um, so, yeah, really just a special player. I think everyone, like you said, loved watching her play, both in terms of the way she hit the ball, the way she moved, more importantly, the spirit that she played the game in. Hmm. Yeah, wow, that's that's ridiculous. What a legend. But before, Stuart, you dip from a four to a three, let's move on. And we're going to dive into the middle of an amazing two-part interview we recorded with Stevie Richardson, who is an Irish squash legend, breaker of many a young pro squash player's hearts and one of the best teammates I've ever had the privilege to play alongside for Ireland with. But we will delve a little bit more into his playing career in part one of this interview, which we will release later this week. But before we go into the interview, here's a couple of random Stevie facts. When he first started playing squash, Kumar Zaman was world champion. When he won his first tournament, Jeff Hunt was world number one. When he made his first senior cap for Ireland, Yancha Khan was world number one. There have been 20 world number ones in the history of squash. He's been playing for Ireland through 17 of them. 15 of those 17 have now retired and the four most recent world number ones were even born when he first played for Ireland, which I just find incredible when you think about it. <laughs> but he's also, he, he splits his life between the squash world and the finance world. And he, and in today's part, he's going to give us an insight into his thoughts, his opinions on how he sees how COVID-19 is impacting the global economy and then the knock-on effect that that could have on the squash ecosystem, tournaments and young professionals and what have you. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, the guy's a guy's a legend, a great talker, and this makes for really good and very interesting listening. Enjoy. Part two, here we go. Stevie, man, you're profession is in the finance industry and you understand how the global economy and the markets work in your view how do you how do you foresee the markets respond to the current pandemic to COVID-19 that the world is facing like how do you think this will affect like sponsorships and tournaments and how will it affect the whole ecosystem and squash players and and playing squash professionally um well first of all I'd say I'm I am no you know, oracle on what's going to happen in the world. I don't think... That's the way you said offline. <laughs> <laughs> that was just so you'd, you're, you'd interview you're, me. You're, 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 you're <laughs> you got to reel me in. Sorry. Your, your screen name says the oracle. 
That's how you label yourself. <laughs> That's the company. <laughs> we also we wouldn't have had you on if you weren't that. Let's <laughs> cut here, guys. Let's cut our losses. Yeah, Let's go. go on. Cheers. Um, no, but realistically, nobody knows what's going to happen going forward and how the world is is going to permeate out of what's happened. Simply because we're in a new paradigm of global financial systems, you know, not even just financial. We had a 2008 financial crash. That was a financially orchestrated situation. This is a global pandemic. You know, we haven't seen one for a hundred years. You know, the world is very different. You know, how, how the world responds to it is absolutely unknown. We can hypothesize and we can, you know, think this is the result and this is what's going to happen. But the reality is there's going to be so many peaks and troughs as to how people see what's happening to actually come out and say, look, this is how it ends or this is what happens in the end of it. It's nigh on impossible. My own personal opinion, and this is purely my own personal opinion, is I think we're in a we're going to be in a bad way for quite a long time, just as a as a global economy. Um, unfortunately, and this is not me being a doomsday or anything else, we've we've basically pressed pause in the global economic development for three to four months. You can't just press play again, right? Um, if you look across the world and you look across, you know, what's going to happen, unemployment's going up. You know, it's going up in a big, big way. And even though a lot of it will be temporary, not 100% of it will come back. It can't come back because you've basically taken an economy that's traveling at 60 miles per hour and, you know, set the limit at 30 miles per hour. So there is a consequence of that. And the consequence of that is that a lot of, very talented and very competent people are going to lose their roles in places through no fault of their own. Um, and that can be, you know, transferred into the squash world. There's going to be tournaments which were really good tournaments before, which the sponsor is no longer going to be there. You know, the, you know, there's going to be travel. You know, you think about a squash player, you're traveling. You know, travel was cheap as chips to most places in the world recently. I guarantee you, the price of an airline ticket from London to the US is going to be double, maybe triple what it is normally now. As a, you know, as a struggling squash player in the 60s to 100s in the world, you're only breaking even probably at best before. Now, you know, break even is going to cost you two, three times more. Hotels, you know, the hotels, they've lost a lot of money. They're going to have to up their prices to get their revenues back. It's just a natural economics 101. Costs are more expensive. You know, revenues are going to be down. You know, prices have to go up to compensate. And that's going to be a real killer for aspiring professional squash players. Now, hopefully the PSA has a way around that and hopefully, you know, billeting will become way more important again. And the tournaments, players will have to just realise there's not as much cash around as there was before. And hopefully their will to participate keeps them participating for less money. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's mad. You know, unfortunately... We'd love to turn around and say, I know you had Goffey on before and they're doing lots of stuff and I think the PSA will do a great job and they're the rights of the game and the people at heart. But there's just natural economics which turn around and say to you, this is not, this is not going to be the same as what it was before. And it's a shame. It's interesting that you bring up the, the travel. One of the few industries that I've followed quite closely is the air, air travel industry and tourism and just trying to get back to the UK, which I'm actually doing in a couple of weeks. Um, and what they're predicting is that in the short term, you may see quite low fares because they need to s stimulate the market again. But medium to long term, they're predicting that it could be up to three years before that gets back to normal. So 
like you say, the impact on players in terms of travel, the options, it seems inevitable that airlines are going to go bust. Number of flights around the world is going to go down. So just the sheer number of options is going to be more limited. And then, as you say, the cost is going to go up and that's going to have a knock-on impact on players. So. Yeah, one perfect example of that, talking about flights. Uh, I was speaking to an old colleague or boss of mine today, and he has a place in Switzerland. And he said there used to be 30 flights a day from London to Geneva. There's now one, right? You know, of course, there's going to be more come back, but that's your, your, your equivalence of what travel has happened. Now, I don't know what it's like in the US, and that, but I'm sure, you know, it's a, a pretty similar scenario. And that's it. That, look, that's a fearful situation, but it's a reality. But, you know, give it two, three, four years and things will start to come back. The good thing we will have with economic recovery going forward is that if the economy recovers, it will recover much quicker than it did before, because you're basically going to be reopening doors that were already there. Um, whereas previously you had to build new capacity and do new things. So that's maybe where I get it completely wrong. And maybe the economy does just bounce back because it's already there. I'm not convinced. Yeah, I can't. I, I just can't see it bouncing back right away either because I just took a flight from New York to Toronto this week and paid $120 for a one-way ticket. And there were 15 people on the flight. You know, so it, like I don't know what the uh, what the max capacity was, but it couldn't have been, you know, maybe 15, 20% full. And so if they're running a few flights like that, the amount of money they're losing right now, like they're going to have to figure out a way to, to make it back. And I think it's the same with, with everything, right? I, in New York, I think there's going to be a lot of restaurants and shops and stuff that just don't come back open. And it's just hard to quantify how that's going to, affect everything but same all around the world it is and the one thing it's as sort of human nature we want to see the positive side to things and we want to sort of deny it and that's it's, that's how we live in human nature and that's what gets us through constantly and why worlds continue to grow but we also have to have a realistic view of things you know one example i would say is you look at u.s unemployment rate at the moment you know the u.s doesn't lie about its numbers as much as most other people Unemployment's gone to 14%. Really, it's 19%. You know, the estimation by the end of the year, it'll be 15%. That's a lot of people unemployed in the US who's got normally an unemployment rate, if you believe Trump shouting about it, you know, lowest unemployment ever of like 3.4%. You're into a new paradigm. And the same thing on the other side of the coin in the UK and in Europe, you know, we're basically lying to the world. You know, unemployment is 3.9% in the UK. That doesn't include the 6 million workers who are currently furloughed, right? Really, they're unemployed at this moment in time. So unemployment's not 3.9%, it's about 9.9%. Same thing in Europe. Unemployment didn't go up in the last release like a, a week or so ago. Um, that's amazing. Wow, look, economy shut down for a few months. Unemployment hasn't gone up? No, because we're not counting people unemployed if they're on a furlough scheme. Yeah, I'm not calling it, lying's a very strong word for it. It's not a lie, but it's fictitious. You know, the reality is, maybe in, the, say, the UK, the six million people are on furlough. My guess is we'd be really lucky if three million of them come back to full-time jobs. That's a scary thought. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, it is, but I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm really, really wrong. But to me, the numbers add up that way. And, you know, we got you got to, there's no point in lying to yourselves. You've got to cut the cough the way it is and make it better, you know, and put stuff yeah. out there that people are going to be employed again and actually go and stimulate the economy and get people doing spending and that's what look, 
that's what the Federal Reserve have done. That's what the ECB have done. The, the MPC, every central bank in, in the world has basically thrown all its, you know, weapons in one go at stimulating the economy. They know how big this is. They've thrown it all at it, you know, and they want they want it to to succeed. You know, fingers crossed it does. So, you know, Stuart and I being at big universities in the States where a lot of fundraising needs to take place, like on the university front, but then also on the athletics front um, for teams to run. I mean, I think I've been, I've been trying to follow the markets. I'm kind of, I'm kind of too soft to actually get in and and make any bets because I'm too nervous to lose. But um, from what I've been following, it does, is it true that a lot of the bigger players aren't losing a ton of money, which would be kind of big spot. Like those are the type of people that, that can put up real money for schools or for squash tournaments, or is everyone really taking a hit from, from this and no matter what, no matter what level of kind of um, their savings and whatnot is. I'm not really in a position to understand the, the American system so much, but what I would say, and was one big benefit to the U S versus the rest of the world the wealth in the US is just unparalleled to the rest of the world. And events, you know, like you look at golf, the FedEx Cup, you look at everything in the US, you know, the, the prize money is ginormous. You know, if you're a if you're a golf player, you know, why does everybody leave the European tour and go to the US tour? Hey, not really a genius. You get $125,000 for turning up at a US PGA tour event. You get $21,000 for turning up at a European tour event. No surprise, Roy McIlroy, who said he'd never leave Northern Ireland, is, you know, US-based now. So the US is a really different world. You know, the wealth is so great there. And the system in the US, I feel personally, is very different to the rest of the world as well. There's a massive benefactor thing to the US world. Um, and there's massive wealth. And tax-efficiently-wise, it's it's very beneficial for US individuals to to donate to those situations, to fundraise in those places. Like, it's mind-boggling if you go to a US fundraising event. It's mind-boggling how much money they can raise. And it's a fantastic thing that that the culture is so. So in that way, you know, people have alumni like you guys, you know, Chris, from your university days and stuff, you'll have an alumni, you'll be a class of whatever. I may be speaking at a turn and saying this, but that will always stay with you. You will always be affinity, have an affinity to that college. You will always support that college. And the very successful people in the U.S. all support their colleges. And their wealth will, while being impinged by this situation, I still think there's so much of it that still will work. Well, they might need two buildings named after themselves instead of one now. <laughs> but, you know, and it's a great thing. It's a great, it's one of the greatest things about the U.S. is the charity, you know, fundraising scenario that it has. People give. It's not the same anywhere else in the world, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so either. Being from Canada, I can say it. You know that college affinity and you know just high school affinity in the U.S. is huge too. And it's interesting coming from coming from a different country. But uh, yeah, good to hear. And yeah, so I, I think that makes a bit of sense. You know, U.S. You know might continue to be able to run these massive tournaments, but the risk that squash being a global sport might be able to spread the wealth all around uh to different countries and these cool different venues might that might be impacted now right because it doesn't take much for a couple big players to drop off and then boom two of your how, how many majors are there in squash now uh six or eight seven, give or take seven, seven or eight yeah yeah, seven or eight, yeah. yeah so 
hopefully hopefully we don't lose any of those. Yeah, look, you know, I'm not au fait enough with the big squash tournaments and how they're funded. Um, my wife actually, you know, works in sports marketing um, and has done for a long time. And, you know, she sees that, you know, look, firms who were, had a lot of money to spend on advertising, that's a budget that goes very quickly. You know, now, I think it's very luckily for squash and maybe belittling squash here a little bit, but people don't invest in squash tournaments for monetary return, right? It's not like the FedEx Cup, right? It's not like that. Generally, sponsors of squash tournament have some association to the sport. And whilst they will get payback for what they are doing, it's not their primary consideration whenever it's looked at. And that's maybe a really good thing for squash in that those wealthy benefactors, and benefactors are the wrong word for them because they are getting return for what they're putting the money into. They could probably still be there and hopefully will still be there. And secondly, the numbers you're talking to run a squash tournament versus what runs a golf slash NFL team, whatever, you know, is infinitesimally small versus it. So, you know, if I'm wrong, squash could actually benefit from this because they maybe have budgets that can't touch big sports and then maybe spend them in small sports. I was just about to say that, like it could be a, could be a chance for maybe squash to, I don't know, maybe attract new sponsors that have never really looked at the game before and using squash as a platform to get their logos out there. Maybe yes, maybe no. It depends on what the marketing teams within those places, you know, because one thing we'll just not to play devil's advocate with you here, but just to say that, Stevie, you know, stop it. Hear... You're playing devil's advocate right now. <laughs> I don't like it. I feel very uncomfortable all of a sudden. But Kelly and I argue about this constantly about, you know, squash is a great role model. And, you know, like Canary Wharf's a brilliant example. It's a great tournament. It's probably one of the best run tournaments around. It's in the middle of a financial district. It's an absolute natural, you know, event to sponsor for a wealth management. And the last couple of years, they've started to get that through so St. James's Wealth and through Citibank a year ago. But it's very hard to convince those people because they've marketing teams who look at pure marketing statistics as to why it makes sense to sponsor this event. And, you know, I've heard this a thousand times from Kelly, you know, for £200,000, you can be a partner at Chelsea Football Club. For £200,000, you can have a week in Canary Wharf. Chelsea Football Club wins hands down, unfortunately. You know, we've got to understand our place in the world. And we got to keep, you know, the people who are interested in the sport, interested in the sport and supporting the sport. It becomes even more important now. It's interesting what you say about benefactors, because if you look at the fanfare around when we had our first ever million dollar tournament in Chicago, that didn't come because a big company stepped forward. It came because the Walter family, which is just a guy and his wife, I believe, stepped forward and wanted to support the sport and have a real passion for the game and put up the prize money individually. And that's what you're talking about. It's, I mean, there was no real return on investment from them or for them, but they were passionate about the game and they wanted to support it. And they believed that the players deserved to be better rewarded in terms of their effort and their commitment. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good example of what you're talking about. Yeah, and it is. And that's, look, that's a reality. I wish I was wrong, you know, and but it's not to say it's not right loads of sports happen that way you, you think about a lot of the golf tournaments happening in the u.s they happen at certain golf courses because a certain guy you know wants it to be there and that's what happens you know again we're focusing on the u.s a lot of the things but 
you know, you look at people buying football clubs in the UK, they buy them for the needs that they want to buy them for. They're not necessarily for returns on investment. It doesn't have to be that all the time. But a lot of the time, you know, you'll get turned away at the door because it doesn't work. Another perfect example for the financial thing is JP Morgan has been involved in tournaments and champions for so long now. That's a great return for them because it showcases them in Wall Street, not on Wall Street, but in Grand Central Station for that week. And it's become synonymous with them. Is their money well spent there? Yes, for what they want to get out of that. But if a marketing person looked at it, would they say, is that money well spent? They'd say probably not. Yeah, there's a a big squash connection there too with with one of the big players at JP Morgan. So that goes back to your point there. (laughs) You need to find... need to find people who are genuinely interested in squash and then they see that extra little value add, not just what the marketing team sees in their statistics. Exactly. Right? And that's, that's the key to finding, in my opinion, to finding consistent, you know, backers of squash. You know, we can't go out and sell the sport as, Hey, we can get you 200,000. You know, I don't know how many people watch the premier league this week. Any idea? I think it was 3.9 million for one of the matches last weekend, which was actually a lot lower than people were expecting because they obviously thought people have been missing the game for so long and suddenly it's back on TV. And I think they were actually quite disappointed that there wasn't more people willing to watch. That's, that's more than a, if it was 8 million, it's probably than a 3.9. That's, that's normal. Uh, my resident expert tells me that's normal <laughs> numbers for <laughs> for a Premier League match. But but I agree with you. Now, I think we're the Premier League, and this is just, again, my own, you know, throwing my opinion out there. They've thrown so many matches on TV in the last week. I think they've made a mistake in, you know, every match is on TV. They're having to placate people who have not been able to watch football and go to the ground, so they're saying that we're just going to chuck a load at you. I think they've made a mistake in that. But, hey, what do I know? I'm not a marketing person. I'm an idiot in the financial market. It'll be over by next week. Who on you, Reds? <laughs> well, they play next week, right? Next Thursday, isn't it? It's Man City, Man City, Liverpool. Yeah, but if uh, I mean, yeah, hopefully it goes to that because Chelsea are playing Man City, I think, on Friday or Saturday. And so, if Chelsea win, then the title goes to Liverpool. But we want to beat City. Forget about the top of the league; it's all about relegation. The Premier League has got also wrong, right? Premier League's about relegation; it's not about winning. Right, survival because you survive, you get a hundred million quid basically. Right, Jesus, you go down, you're almost bankrupt. It's you know, the, the exciting thing of the Premier League is relegation. You know, the financial viability of your club's all about that. And I have a great story, you know, maybe I shouldn't tell much about this, but years ago, when Crystal Palace got promoted to the Premier League. They, when they were in the playoff finals against, I can't remember who they were playing, Watford, I think it was. And before the playoff final, the two clubs had a conversation about, you know, revenues and stuff. And from what I hear is the FA passed that the loser of the game kept the whole gate at Wembley and the winning team gave the losing team X amount of money um, to, you know, to say sorry was not really to say sorry, but was to say, basically, we realise how much financial difficulty you're going to be in and we realise what sort of windfall we're getting. And the FA passed it and said, look, that's fine to do that. You're not contravening any rules to do that. Um, but that's how important this. And the money, I think, came down to how much it costs to run a team in the championship for the next year. 
Wow. I think premiership teams that get relegated also get a payment just to help with their salary costs. Yeah, the parachute payment, what is it, 60 million? They get yeah. 60 million. Yeah, so if you're a really good football team and you're doing it in a pure economics thing, which I, let's just think Mike Ashley, who was a squash player, by the way, I hope you all know that. Ooh. Mike Ashley was, was supposedly going to go pro at squash. Um, but I'm not saying he does this on purpose, but he's happy for Newcastle to go up and down because you get your parachute payment for two years for going down and then you get back up into the premiership and then you're in the premiership money. You go back down again, you get your parachute money and you go back up. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, it's not that easy to do. Look at the number of teams who have gotten relegated and then never come back up. I was going you to know, say risky strategy if you don't make it back risky, up. But, but if you're running it as a business, that's what you would do. You'd have all these brilliant players in the championship, get to the premiership, sack them all, get relegated, go back up. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, look, it's, you know, the, the leagues are so different and it's so hard for one to go. But for me, the main thing is relegation in the Premier League is so much more exciting than, than winning the league. It is who's this on, year. Who's on the chopping block? Unfortunately, my wife is a very big Villa fan and, you know, there's three or four teams sitting on 27 points and all it takes is one of those teams to win and, you know, they will, they'll survive. And interestingly, the most interesting one for me, and I'm making a, a statement here, Aston Villa play West Ham on the last day of the season. They're currently, I think, 17th and 18th. So one of them's in relegation and one of them's not. They're on the same points. And they play each other in the last day of the season. That is, I would even call it, that's a billion pound match. Oh, I used to get nervous playing a squash match knowing that the prize money difference was $100. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Stu, that probably that probably was more than a billion to you at those days. It's all relative. <laughs> Quite Stu. possibly, yeah. yeah. Especially being a Scotsman yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> difference between dinner in a restaurant and dinner in a supermarket. D- difference between dinner at a supermarket and no dinner at all. <laughs> Arthur's been as well. Like one of my lovely anecdotes. I was hoping you would ask me about this. Where I was like, I remember Arthur and I went to play the Worlds in Malouz. Uh, 2011 was it, Art? Yes. Uh, 13, maybe 13, 13, 13. 13, yeah. 2013, and we Irish squash didn't have much money. We basically funded ourselves to go. So Arthur and I did it on the cheap, and we got the train over, you know, from London down, you know, through Paris across to, you know, the French Alps, wherever it was, Malouse is. And I remember having a conversation with Arthur on the train, and this was at a time when Arthur had just come back onto the tour and was doing it and he would quit his job when he was coaching in Ipswich and said, I'm going back on the tour. And I remember looking at him, talking to him on the train and thinking, I'm going to talk him out of this. You know, this is the stupidest thing he's ever done. You know, <laughs> he's got a good paying job. I even think you'd bought a car and you were looking to sell the car. Oh because man, that was a disaster. It. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> the debt collectors. <laughs> <laughs> but the conversation went along the lines of, I said, look, what, have you thought about this? Have you thought what you're doing? What? And it, it will resonate with me forever. You just said, I want to play professional squash. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. I know that that's how I want to be. And I know it's going to cost me money. And I know that when I finish playing professional squash, I'm going to go into coaching. I'm happy with that. But I just want to see how good I can be. And I'll never forgive myself if I don't do it. I remember sitting, looking across from me in the tree and thinking, you know, shit he's got it right you know that I, I honestly and i'm not just saying that I, that's seven eight years ago that conversation i remember it vividly you know 
exactly what you said. And I just thought that's absolutely right. You're doing what you wanted to do. And you knew the consequences of what you were going to do. And you, there, was, there was no hiding from it. There was no nothing. It was like, I wanted to play squash. And that's what I want to do. And that's what I'm going to do. You know, 10 minutes later, we're we talking about you living off a tin of beans. And <laughs> for three years. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, geez, half a tin of beans for lunch and a slice of toast, half a tin of beans and half a can of rice or half a cup of rice and some broccoli. Living the dream, man. But were you happy? Probably not, but... <laughs> <laughs> you were, though. Oh, you, lived, you lived the dream. I, I loved it, yeah. I, yeah, I would do it again in a heartbeat. You know, it's funny, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this anecdote. You talk about the same trip, so we get the train back. So the last night, it was a big night, actually, uh, at the end of the world teams it was middle of june anyways we had a big night it was only the two of us stevie and i derek and brian byrne had got a flight back to dublin on the night of the finals so we stayed in we're at a table with the english boys and they had won it they were celebrating there was like four bottles of champagne at the table and you know it was going down pretty well so we kind of absolutely smashed it and by the way just to put a little bit more substance and context to what's about to come stevie played seven matches he won six of them and he lost the first one. And the match that he lost, he was one all with Jens Schur and he just came off. He said, no, I've had my fix now. I'm just going just gonna to let him take it. I'm ready for tomorrow's match against uh, the US, which he actually won in five. Anyways, so the next day we're absolutely goosed. And there's a McDonald's. We have a two-hour wait in Paris. It's a train connection back to London. And Stevie says, come on, we'll go get a McDonald's. So we went across the road, had a McDonald's. I remember looking at the clock thinking, geez, like, this is way too like close. I, did, I didn't like it. I didn't like the way that we were kind of functioning and operating. But I thought Stevie knows best. He's done this before. <laughs> we get we get to we get to go in the train. Let's say it's one o'clock is the train from Paris to London. So we're hanging outside at about half twelve, and he's like, "Right, come on, we'll go on." <laughs> we go on, and the guy says. Uh, no, no, you can't go on. Uh, and Steve's like, what do you mean we can't go on? I mean, we're here. The train's there. He says, yeah, yeah, but it closes half an hour before the train leaves. You can't go on. And he absolutely lost his... Oh, it was so funny. And we're so hungover and we're in bits. And, and Stevie's like, he's a shell of a man because he played <laughs> so some, some seriously hard squash that week. Oh, man. I think it took you about a month to recover from that, if memory serves. No. It took me six months. <laughs> that whole tournament. I honestly it took me six months to recover from that tournament from having to play every because I, I didn't I wasn't meant to play all the matches. Derek got injured against Gilly Lane. Yeah. Um when we played the US. And then the rest of we had to play every match and every match was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember and then on the finals night we didn't get home from the party because the party was in some place like 15 kilometers out. Yeah. And they only run buses. And I think the bus left at three o'clock and we got back at half past four in the morning and our train was at half past five or six. Oh, man. It was timing. literally chronic fatigue in one oh. night. Yeah. You actually, but, I, I would have missed it only for you. You actually were banging on the door. I thought it was something inside my head. <laughs> Arthur, the reason I was banging on the door was that you had been found running down the road <laughs> by the South African team at like half past four in the morning trying to get home. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I got a taxi with Michael Dason Wood because uh, I missed the bus. You were like, come on, Arthur, we'll get the bus. I said, I'll be there in a minute. And I got, yeah. Anyways, brilliant. Good yeah. times. Happy days. That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Stevie, we'll wrap up there, man. Thanks a million for taking up the time. Uh, it's always great to listen to you. You're, uh, as usual, great talker. You, you, you think and speak cogently, as they say. Thanks a million.
not so sure. But thank you very much for having me on, guys. And look, can I just say you're doing a great job in this? Just make sure you keep it going and keep it interesting and keep keep asking a lot of good questions of a lot of people. It's great. Thanks, thank Stevie. you, sir. Yeah, cheers. Well yeah. done, guys. Yep. Love to the family, man. Cheers. Cheers, fellas. Cheers. See ya. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Okay, that concludes the Stevie Richardson interview. Uh, thanks, Stevie, for coming on and for the uplifting chat. Really appreciate it. Definitely on a three now. <laughs> um, okay, wrap things up there, fellas. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everyone, again, for all your likes and shares. If you do like what you hear, you don't need to keep it to yourself. You can share it amongst your friends. Happy days. All right. Uh, yeah, till next time. Cheers.